2: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
3: Let's start with Adam. I mean, after all humanity did, supposedly Adam lived to be some 930 years old.
1: That's right. And allegedly, Noah, he lived 20 years longer to the ripe age, really the overripe age of 950.
3: Well, there's Methuselah. He surpassed them all. He kept going until he was 969. Now, to put that in perspective, if you're 50 years old today and you live to be 969, you'll still be around in the year 2932, albeit with some compromises.
4: Mm, Can't see a blasted thing. These trifocals are worthless. That's why I got quintfocals to wear over my quadfocals.
3: My eyes are like new. Hope those guys have good pension plans. The point is... What would you do with another 700 years? I mean, would you keep your car or at least another 70 years? Now,
1: that goal may be within reach. Average life expectancy is rising around the world, and it may continue to do so. We
3: all naturally want to keep on going. I mean, longevity is something we all aspire to. So when we hear that someone is old, (laughs) let's go with extra mature, you know, somebody extra mature enough to have personally experienced 80% of what's in your history book.
4: So I said to Teddy Roosevelt, I said to him, you know, the French are never going to finish that canal. Maybe you should take a stab. And... So imagine our thrill when they invented the ball bearing. Oh, how the wheels on the old stagecoach turned. The horses got three miles per hay bale instead
3: of one. (laughs) Good times. We want to know from these old folks, what's your secret? And answering that question is what scientists are trying to do. We want to know just how long can we keep the Grim Reaper at bay.
4: It is time. Um, uh, well, here's a Rubik's Cube. I bet you can't solve three sides. What? Give me that. Dang. Now back to the next item on the bucket list, Roomba lessons.
1: In the 20th century, that's the century prior to the one we're in now, average lifespans lengthened, although a lot of that was due to medicine's success in reducing infant mortality. But now we're paying attention to the other end of our lives. How far can we extend them?
0: And
3: perhaps even more importantly, will they be marked by good health? Will they be golden years or molybdenum years? I'm Seth Shostak. How would you characterize molybdenum years? They don't have quite the luster of the golden years, I suppose.
1: I'm Molly Bentley, the science of longevity and why the passage of time is relative. It's big picture science.
3: Finding the secret to long life has gone beyond handing out cups of yogurt. Every aspect of human biology has been studied to determine what controls aging and if we can control it ourselves. Our cells, our chromosomes, the tips of our chromosomes, which are called telomeres.
1: Plus studies into behavior as well. How much exercise should we get? Should we restrict our diet? And so forth. Now, the average life expectancy for Americans today, it's about 79 years for women and 77 for men. And in general, it's going up. And his writer Ted Anton discovered, the race to move that finish line is big science and it's competitive. His book, The Longevity Seekers, Science, Business, and the Fountain of Youth.
3: So, Ted, scientists are working to slow the mechanics of aging. Some even go so far as to call for an end to aging altogether. Can you give me an overview of the field of longevity research? I would
5: say at this point the emphasis is on extending health it's not on the sort of fountain of youth which is where it began maybe in its heady first days 10 15 years ago and uh, right now there's probably about a dozen to 15 startup companies each pursuing one or another aspect of uh, lab discoveries in in model animals model organisms one of which may lead to a drug. I think in the next 10 years, we're going to eliminate some
3: of them, and I think some of them will come through as treatments for late-life disease. So, so you're saying that within a decade, I can go to my pharmacy <laughs> and, and buy something, you know, live longer, take this. Well, uh, I didn't quite say that, but, you know, uh, maybe. Who knows? I,
5: I would say uh, in a decade, there'll be something on the market that came out of this exciting, uh, controversial, explosive uh, series of discoveries in the lab. All right. Well,
3: we routinely hear about things that apparently, or at least are claimed, uh, would help us live longer. I mean, eating right, not smoking, exercise, those are all, I guess, health uh, measures. Uh, But one of the things that I recall that came out of the laboratories not so long ago was being put on a near-starvation diet, restrict your calories. What would be the advantages of that? How could that help you live longer? In many lab animals, restricting calories does increase
5: health and longevity, although it's controversial. It's taken some hits, that discovery, in recent years. It seems to increase your stress resistance, it uh, lowers the uh, rate at which you age. And uh, so there's several studies ongoing with humans and with monkeys, and uh, the results are conflicting. But it does seem that if you eat a little less and eat a little better, it does increase your health as you age.
3: Yeah, but does it increase your enjoyment of life? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> that's, yes. a, that's always my uh, reservation. Well, what would you say, Ted, is the most astonishing discovery uh, regarding the mechanisms of aging made recently? I mean, if you had to point to one, To me, the most uh, fascinating
5: thing is uh, the animals. The longevity evolves in the wild all the time, and we, we just really never noticed it. So, bowhead whales live 210 years. Uh, the tortoises in the Indian Ocean live uh, more than a century. And even uh, these obscure African mole rats uh, live to 100 in human years. That's 30 in their own years. And they never get cancer, or heart disease, or dementia, at least as much as you can tell. And I find those really compelling because that's happening naturally. And then the, the second uh, really convincing discovery to me is uh, some of the mechanisms in human centenarians that are people are racing to uncover.
3: You know, you've named a whole bunch of animals that seem to have right. developed the ability to live uh, exceptionally long lives. I kind of wonder what's the survival value in that. I mean, for the individual, yes, they survive longer. But you would think that for the species, it might be a better strategy to, you know, keep having generations getting out of the way so that you can adapt more quickly to whatever circumstances are out there. I mean, does nature have any real interest in longevity? You know, that's a great question, and you could have a whole conference and
5: have a bunch of evolutionary biologists yelling at each other about that. Uh, Some of these animals reproduce until they die, like our African mole rats. So for them, it is absolutely an adaptive trait to, to live longer. Uh, They live in tunnels beneath the uh, surface, away from predators and the the African heat. But other animals, like guppies uh, in Trinidad, they have menopause, and they live much longer, and they pass it on to their offspring, even in predation-heavy environments, and and nobody's quite sure what that means. So in certain cases, longevity can be adaptive. In other cases, it's more like a footnote to, let's say, being healthier uh, to escape predators.
3: That's quite interesting. Speaking of smaller critters, what about uh, this worm, C. elegans? We learned something important from that, didn't we?
5: Yeah, so C. elegans is this amazing little creature, four-fifths of all visible forms of life are some relative of it. And uh, at three days old, it has this amazing ability to suspend animation if there's no food in its environment. And it turns out that if you just tweak that same mechanism a little bit, It doesn't go into suspended animation, but it lives two times or three times or six times or even ten times its normal life and is, as far as we can tell, perfectly healthy. And that turned out to be an insulin receptor. And that discovers 1997, and that caused the explosion of interest in longevity drugs and uh, in aging because, you know, that's a huge, important human uh, mechanism for diabetes and for health. Insulin. Uh, receptor, you want to be have
3: less insulin circulating in your system, and be more sensitive to it. So, have they done experiments where they've extended the lifespan of some lab animals by yes. by doing it? They
5: have absolutely. So, not only worms, but virtually every animal they've worked on: flies, mice, rats. Uh, the, the experiments are ongoing with monkeys because they live longer. If you increase insulin sensitivity and decrease insulin
3: signaling, um, they will live longer. They're always doing good things for lab mice. <laughs> yes. I mean, they, they make them live longer. They cure cancer. They do all these things for mice. I mean, mice are the biggest benefits of uh, medical research in, in some sense, I suppose. I, yeah, but you're still a mouse. <laughs> a man or a mouse. Something else I recall from discussions in the popular media was that Telomeres, which I believe are on the end caps right. of our DNA. I mean, they're they're sort of the endpoints of our DNA strands. That those shorten with time as we get older. They shorten, and if you can keep that from happening, you might live longer. Right. Is, is, is there any truth to that? Oh yes, uh, it's actually
5: the ending to our chromosomes, and it does shorten as we age. And especially if you take human cells and put them in a, a lab dish. And uh, certain long-lived animals, like the Arctic seabirds, have really long telomeres. And uh, so that seems to be related to longevity. Uh, So yeah, there is at least one company, if not more, uh, racing to see if they can apply that, the uh, enzyme telomerase, which keeps them long toward uh, some kind of a drug. But there's some problems with it. For example, mice, which only live two years, they also have really long telomeres. they do. Yeah, so there's always a catch, but it's very exciting. I find it very interesting. Of course, it won a Nobel Prize for three great researchers, and who knows
3: what it'll lead to. What do you say about people, and I'm thinking now of Ray Kurzweil, for example, Mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, will publicly say that he's hoping to live forever, and the basis for this claim is he's saying, you know, life expectancy is increasing by more than one year per year, and consequently, if I can just stay in the race, I will win this race.
5: Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think he's very important. I, I like to read his books. He gets attention to the field, and it's a very promising field. I, I think he goes too far. Uh, the transhumanists, um, I think there is probably an upper limit on how long, just from an engineering point of view, the human body can last. That that Of course, that's a huge controversy in the field. So he's important uh, as a kind of fun sideline to, you know, what might work for you and me.
3: I see. Well, that's discouraging in a way. <laughs> yeah, well,
5: <laughs> you know, um, to me, it's, uh, it's the mystery, it's the pursuit, it's the, uh, the thriller part of it. You know, the end point probably
3: won't work for you or for me, Seth. We'll be past our time. My gosh. In a sense, Ted, we've, we've kind of undergone a paradigm shift here, right, uh, compared with, I don't know, maybe the 19th century, because we no longer assume that aging is inevitable,
5: Yes. Yes, I would say there has been a paradigm shift. The, uh, the question even twenty years ago, is lifespan in some way a controlled or a modifiable quality it would have been answered no, and I think today most everybody would answer yes. It is in some degree, uh, controlled or modified by our our genes. So you know the question twenty years ago was do genes affect health of aging, and today. The question is, which genes affect the health and aging?
3: That is a shift. And, you know, when we talk about extending lifespans to, I don't know, 120, 150, it's not that you're going to be in a nursing home for the last 50 years of your life, right? I mean, the idea is to, to be healthy and active. Yeah, and
5: that is really, I would say, the the fundamental bottom line take-home message uh, today is uh, this is about our health as we age. It's not necessarily about a fountain of youth, Ponce de Leon discovery. And and that's a looming crisis because we're all aging. We are living longer, and uh, if we're I- unhealthy, it's going to be a huge drag on the global economy.
3: Ted Anton, thank you so very much for being
5: with us. Thank you, Seth.
1: Ted Anton is a professor of English at DePaul University in Chicago. He's the author of *The Longevity Seekers*, *Science*, *Business*, and *The Fountain of Youth*. Hey, Mike, you think
3: it's a good idea to smoke? I mean, the African brush is pretty dry.
4: Is that so?
1: <sighs> also, it's not good for you.
4: Hey, Maybe not for a rock mouse like you. I'm immune to it, baby.
1: Hey, Mike, how's my favorite mole rat doing good?
3: You
4: know it. You want some fried cheese? I got wine, too.
1: Ooh.
3: What's your secret, Mike? You're pretty much blind, and you're certainly not cashing in on your good looks. But you do get the chicks. What gives?
4: First, some chicks dig hairlessness. Second, Dolce Vita, baby. I live it up. Drink, smoke as much as I want. No cancer, no heart disease. My only job is to have fun and reproduce until I die, which is not for a long time. Hey, Sandra, you want to go to a movie?
1: You betcha. But but he's nearly blind.
4: <laughs> That's okay. We're not going to watch it.
3: Next... While we associate old age with physical decline, there is a silver lining for the silver-haired. And also, what long life means for a tree, it's long-live longevity. On
1: Big Picture Science.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have
3: a question for you.
2: What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
3: all right, I want to live a long life,
1: I want to stick around, but I also want to be healthy as I get older. Well, science and medicine are helping you out there because they've definitely improved our health during our later years. So now as the 60 is the new 40 set, run their triathlons and learn to skydive, more attention is being given to their mental and emotional state. And there's good news there. According to Stanford University psychologist Laura Carstensen, older people are, in general, happier than their younger counterparts.
3: And I assume it's not just because they have more insurance. As Kathy Bates' character noted triumphantly in the film Fried Green Tomatoes, With age comes knowledge, expertise, emotional steadiness, stress and anger fade away.
1: Dr. Karstensen is the director of the Stanford Center of Longevity, and her team studies how we change physically and mentally as we take one more orbit around the sun and how science and technology can improve our lives. And now they have more years to work with. Life expectancy in the U.S. and most of the developed world has increased by 30 years in the 20th century alone. And this is absolutely extraordinary. That 30 years
0: is more than all of the increases added across all the millennia of human evolution combined. So in historical terms, in a blink of an eye, we nearly double the
1: length of the lives that we're living. You talk a lot about how much happier older adults are. Mm -hmm. Can you say a bit about that? I mean, you're really seeing higher levels of optimism Mm -hmm. as people age.
0: Yeah, older people are doing better in terms of mental health than their middle-aged and younger counterparts. And for a long time in, in psychology and in the social sciences, people talked about this as the paradox of aging, because there are a lot of bad things about growing old. Uh, there's the loss of health, often the loss of social status, the loss of loved ones through illness and death. There's, there's you know, the, the saying, you know, old age is no place for sissies is, is true. So how is it then that people are experiencing life on a day-to-day basis feeling better and, and doing better? And what our research has suggested over the years is that it has a lot to do with one's perspective on life and that age changes your perspective. And it does so in a way that I'm not sure can even be uh, approached at younger years. That is, when you're 70 and 80 years old, you have an ability to look at life, to look at the past, and to consider the future, knowing that you know bad times pass, so do good times, and knowing that there is a fragility to life that appears to make us recognize how precious it is. And that's something that younger people tend not to do as they look at a vast open-ended future with lots of opportunities, but lots of anxieties about those opportunities as well.
1: But that suggests that our relationship to time is shifting. So -hmm. when you're younger, you have so much time and the concept of a deadline and the ultimate deadline Mm -hmm. is one that you you can't conceive. Are there age-related changes in our perception of time? There are.
0: Uh, To the best of our knowledge, we are the only species that monitors lifetime. I mean, you know, lots of organisms monitor time. You can't have conditioning if you don't monitor time. But I'm not talking about clock time or calendar time, but lifetime. And we assume, we presume, I think most people do, and most scientists, that we're the only species that does that. That is that you and I sitting here right now know at some deep level that we will not live forever. Life is not open-ended, that we have a certain amount of time left, and it appears from much of the research we've done that people are really good at monitoring that across uh, certainly adulthood, probably from the teen years on, where people come to understand that the older they get, the less time they have. Again, we believe this is absolutely linked to this improvement in emotional well-being because it makes a day to be more precious uh, when you know that you don't have a lot of them, and for younger people, they've got t- scores of them. You know, just you know the future again looks 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 endless. Um, even though they can know at some intellectual level, it's not emotionally they don't appreciate that. And the older we get, the more we see that we have to make important choices about what we do, how we invest our time. Uh, for most people, the most important priorities in life have to do with other people. And so as people get older, they start to manage relationships better. They start to savor life and other people. And in doing so,
1: improve their uh, mental health and emotional lives. It's interesting that you said that we understand, we're the only species that understands that our lifespan comes to an end. I mean, certainly fruit flies don't contemplate this or dogs and or cats, although I'm sure we'll hear from cats and cat and dog (laughs) owners now uh, about how they do do that. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, we don't. Because if we were to wake up every day, and this is assuming Mm -hmm. that you're that you're healthy or you yeah. still have some health or that that you're not in the process of, of dying. If you were to wake up and really take to heart the fact that your, your life had an end point, some philosophers or scientists say you might not get out of bed. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain act of denial that we have to engage in so that we do yeah. get up and go and, and venture out into the world and know that there's a deadline mm-hmm. there, but not be too panicked or fearful mm-hmm. by it. Right. I, you know, I think, I think mortality is
0: the key of human motivation. Why would we, you know, do anything if we knew we had all the time left in the world? And if we knew today was going to be the last day, we might be paralyzed. But that's the beauty of this ability to monitor is that it, it isn't terrifying to think, oh, I've probably got at least 20 years and likely 30 years left. Sitting here today as a 59-year-old, that's not scary to me because that's a long way off. But it's different to say if I'm sitting here as a 20-year-old, I got 70 years. You know, anything could happen. What's life going to be like? You know, so life gets to be more predictable as we see life time running
1: out well then that brings to mind some of the work or calls into question some of the work around aging and you you know that there are the longevity seekers Mm -hmm. and those who claim that they can end aging first I'd like to know whether or not you think that is possible to end aging it's it's quite blue sky at this point yeah Um, and then if that is a healthy pursuit and what that might mean to the meaning of our lives right First,
0: is it possible? So science can never tell you that something is not possible, right? So there is, there's no way to say it's not possible. I will say uh, that I'm not losing sleep over it, <laughs> worried that it's around the corner. You know that we will uncap the cap on human mortality and then have to deal with people living forever. I mean, if you play out the extreme scenario of that. You know nearly immediately we could have no more children. The overpopulation of the world would be a, a a massive problem. I mean, you can just see all sorts of problems associated with that. But again, i I'm not losing sleep over that. And the scientists I know who are concerned and interested in trying to increase life span, are not trying to do that either. They're not trying to make people live to be a 1,000 or whatever. But they would like to see people live out their full lifespans and perhaps push lifespan a little as well. So what will happen if we could, if we could find an approach to longevity that where people would live longer in healthy states, what would that look like?
1: And then on the idea of how we approach our lives and this idea of changing the world, let's say that we could grant someone or we could grant you 60 more years, at least. Mm -hmm. We just knew you would be fine. You would be healthy just the way you are now. Can you feel how it might change your approach to getting up every day if you knew right now you had another 60 years? (laughs) Myself personally, would I change?
0: I, I, think it would, I think it would hurt motivation. I, I think knowing that there is a, an urgency to work and love and relationships, a, a need to get it right, to not let too much time go by before um, actually does improve life. And I wouldn't want to see us lose that. You know, that said, you know, there are a lot of people today living over to be older than 100. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that's wrong or we should, you know, complain about. But I think the guarantee that's which is the way you pose the question. If you could guarantee someone you've got this much time left, it removes some of that tentativeness. And and in doing so might take away some of the suspense of of
1: life. Laura Carstensen, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
3: Laura Carstensen is a psychologist at Stanford University and director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. Okay, well, we all want to strut and fret across this mortal coil for a longer period of time. 80 years, not really enough. We want 120 or something like that. But of course, longevity is relative. I mean, each species has its own life expectancy. If you're a fruit fly, that's a month. Two months, that would double the length of its existence. And the secret to my long life?
4: lots of empty yogurt containers, exercise, and...
1: And for some other species, their average stay on this planet
3: might be a thousand years. Many people can identify a ginkgo tree. They're they're common in cities. They have those distinctive fan-shaped leaves... And they may even have gone to their neighborhood pharmacy and spotted or even taken ginkgo biloba tablets, which are reported to have medicinal benefits such as memory improvement.
1: Well, you'd have to have quite the power of recollection to picture the last time that this species of tree has changed. It's basically the same tree as it was millions of years ago. And it has stain power in other ways as well. So here's a reason to look at that ginkgo tree on your block with new respect— There's a good chance it will outlast you tenfold. An individual tree can live as long as 1,500 years. Peter Crane is a botanist at Yale University and the author of Ginkgo, The Tree That Time Forgot.
6: This issue of longevity in in Ginkgo has a couple of different dimensions. One is the longevity of an individual tree, which, as you say, might be around 1,000 years. And then the other is the kind of longevity of the lineage You know, these kinds of ginkgo trees have been around for about 200 million years. So there's kind of two interconnected questions, one about the longevity of an individual tree and and the other about the longevity of the whole lineage.
3: Well, let's talk about the individuals then because... uh you know, I've seen bristlecone pines in the mountains of California, and I'm told that some of those guys are 50,000 years old. You're standing next to a tree. It's not a particularly attractive tree. And they say 50,000 years old. I mean, that's that's older than
6: civilization. Are there other botanical uh, members of the longevity club? Yeah. You know, uh, you, you often have these very long ages ascribed to individual trees, and, and often they're not well documented. So, you know, in the case of the bristlecone pines, they are on the order of a few thousand years old, but not as much as 50. And in the case of the giant redwoods, then they're on the order of of 3,000, 3,500, some of the really, really big ones. And in the case of ginkgo, you know, typically around about a thousand years or so for a really old uh, specimen, but probably not... Three and a half thousand years old, which is what some of the trees in China, for example, which are huge trees, have been claimed to be.
3: You've also mentioned that the species is very long-lived, two hundred million years. that's That's really an
6: ancient species. I mean, how far back do trees go? Well, you know, the first things that we would look at and call a tree, you know, are perhaps about 350 million years before present. And some of those would have good woody trunks, not too different from the trunk of a ginkgo, actually. But ginkgo starts to appear in the fossil record about 200 million years ago. Obviously, it has a very distinctive leaf, you know, these kind of classic fan-shaped leaves. So they're very easy to recognize. And they start to show up around 200 million years ago. And then you can trace them all the way through up to the present. And you can trace the history of that lineage on the planet over a huge span of time. So that's one of the reasons that the lineage in the tree is so fascinating in a way.
3: So what you're saying is that if I'm a... I don't know, a paleontologist, and I'm digging up ancient rock at essentially every level down to 200 million years, which is a long long way back, I'm going to find impressions of ginkgo leaves.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And you have to be in the right kinds of habitats, of course. You know, you have to be where they were living. And you have to be in a place where those leaves are going to get into the sediments, into the rocks and be preserved. But if you're in the right kinds of places. Uh, you will see them. And I've collected them myself from deposits in Yorkshire, England, you know, 160 million years old, from deposits in North Dakota, 55 million years old. There are rocks in Scotland that have them, around about 60 million years old. They're all over the planet. In fact, at one time, they were on every continent. Today, uh, ginkgo as a native species is just restricted to China. But they've been, for the last, um, you know, really since about 1750, they've been uh... grown around the world you know they were first brought to europe around about seventeen fifty and then spread from there to north america and now they're very widely planted as a as a street tree but but all of those street trees go back to a few populations that that are surviving in in, in china i kind of wonder two hundred million years i mean uh, could could dinosaurs have uh, you know chowed down on ginkgos oh absolutely i think that's almost certain that they did and so you know that, that's one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this tree. So when you wander around the streets of Manhattan, you know it's one of the most common street trees in Manhattan, uh, and uh, you see it there amongst these buildings and all of this technology. You should sort of stop and reflect that um, you know T. Rex knew ginkgo too, you know, and uh, they were part of they were definitely part of dinosaur habitats. An obvious question one might ask is.
3: This plant seems to have some sort of morphological stasis. I mean, it, you mm. know, it hasn't changed a whole lot in 200 million years, whereas many other organisms have had to adapt with the times. There have been a couple of mass extinctions and so forth. Um, what is it about
6: this tree that it, you know, it says, I'm, "I'm good with what I've got"? That's a really interesting question, and I don't think there's a very good answer to it, frankly. And the answers that have been proposed for these kinds of phenomena, and obviously ginkgo is just one example, there are many others. You know, the coelacanth would be another kind of classic example in the animal world. The kinds of answers that have been proposed are not entirely satisfactory, and it's probably in part uh, some sort of genetic homeostasis that constrains their developmental flexibility, but it may also be that they have stuck with particular kinds of habitats over time. But none of these are really kind of totally satisfactory. And when there's so much change in the world going on and so obvious, it makes you wonder, what is it about this tree and the other organisms like it, the other living fossils like it, that have kept it basically standing still for so long?
3: Well, we all want to know the secret of longevity, so let's get to that. I mean, what is the ginkgo tree's secret for a long life?
6: Well, I think there are a couple of things. It has a particular way of growing, which means that it can kind of continue to grow in a very easy way. But I think perhaps the most important thing is that it has ways of reproducing itself vegetatively. That is to say, on old trees, you often get sucker shoots coming up from the base. And in very old trees, you get these peculiar stalactite-like downgrowths from the branches. And they sort of grow downwards, and then when they hit the ground then they send shoots up again. So that one tree sort of starts to propagate itself, if you like, and turns itself into a little clone. And that special way of growing, I think, is part of why some of these big trees can last as long as they can. I mean, I've seen big trees in China and Japan that are more like a kind of thicket rather than an individual tree.
3: So so is it fair to say that they have long individual lives if it's really just a matter of sort of budding
6: themselves off? Yeah, and and that's a kind of an interesting thing. You know, for animals, it's all very straightforward. But for a plant which is reproducing vegetatively, uh, it's a little more difficult to say what an individual is. But certainly from a genetic point of view, the little plantlets that are produced around an old ginkgo tree are exactly the same as the tree itself.
3: The tree has had a history of medicinal use, Peter. Um, We associate taking ginkgo today with improving our memory. Is there any evidence that it really
6: does that? Well, it's very controversial, and you've got strong views on both sides. And I think it's fair to say that the evidence is not really all that clear. On the other hand, I do know people who swear by it and who really feel that they benefit from taking ginkgo. And in a way, who am I to say that they're not? You know, they may well be. Well... it' it's, it's it's tough to it's tough to figure that out. Well,
3: finally, Peter, this is a tree that has rare survival skills, if you could call them skills, both as individuals and certainly as a species. And yet I, I think I've heard that it is
6: threatened with extinction today, is that right? Well, I think its remaining wild populations are very small, and there's even some debate as to whether they are truly wild or not, because this is a plant that's been in cultivation in China probably for a thousand years. So in the wild, this tree is not actually doing so well. But of course, the delight of it is that there's no chance now that it would ever go extinct because it's so widely grown around the world that that we're going to have it and we're going to be able to enjoy it. Maybe not in the habitats where it originally grew up, if you like, but it's a plant now that's uh, here to stay. So it's a funny thing. It's endangered in the wild, but yet one of the most common trees on the planet.
3: We'll be gone. The ginkgos will still be here. Absolutely. Peter Crane, thank you so very much for talking with us. My pleasure.
1: Peter Crane is a botanist and dean of the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale University. He is the author of Ginkgo, the Tree That Time Forgot.
3: So we've considered longevity in both the animal and plant kingdoms, but... Forget for a moment the individuals of a given species. What's the staying power of an entire civilization? Well, knowing the answer could give us a clue as to whether we'll ever encounter intelligent life elsewhere in the cosmos.
1: Long live longevity on Big Picture Science.
7: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Individuals can live from a few days to a few centuries, depending on the species. But what about the lifetime of a culture, an
1: entire society? Homo sapiens is a technically sophisticated species for sure. And if you're unsure what we mean by that, just Google it on your smartphone.
3: But some think that the consequences of technology—advanced weapons, environmental depredations—might cause us to self-destruct in the near future. So here's a real question. Does any species that develops technology inevitably and relatively quickly wipe itself out?
1: Our chances for finding intelligent life beyond Earth depend on that answer— and astronomer Frank Drake has dared to estimate the longevity of alien societies.
7: If we're to find intelligent life, we have to find their technology, and it has to be a technology that's detectable across the great distances which separate the stars. Now, you can only have that kind of technological power and intensity and brilliance If you have a pretty sophisticated and rich civilization, which is technologically very knowledgeable and is willing to invest its resources in technologies which are detectable over the interstellar distances.
3: So they have to hang out for a long time uh, in order to have a chance that you'll be listening when their signal crosses your planet kind of thing.
7: Well, that's right. It's no good if they only transmit something we can detect for 10 minutes. Uh, We're never going to see that. We'll never be that lucky They've got to have a civilization that has great longevity, that continues to thrive, to use high technology for very long periods of time. And by long periods, I mean not a year or 10 years. I mean thousands or perhaps millions of years.
3: Now, do we have any idea what these uh, numbers might be? I mean, you know, we know that we've been technologically competent for, I don't know, the order of 100 years maybe. Uh, that's not very long, I suppose, not compared to the thousands you're talking about. How do we possibly estimate what this might be for somebody else?
7: Well, you've put the finger on the biggest puzzle in this whole question of what it'll take to find extraterrestrial life. We have only the one example, as you just mentioned, of an intelligent civilization using detectable technology. That's us. We know of no others. We are very bad at predicting our own future. The best we can do is go on what our history has been and hope that we can make a reasonably intelligent guess as to how long we will be detectable. That is very hard to do. As you mentioned, we have been detectable for a hundred years.
3: I've read estimates of what this lifetime might be, and and I will point out, because you're too modest to do so, that this is an important, even the the most important term in a famous formulation known as the Drake Equation, the lifetime of these civilizations. But I've heard people try to estimate this, and some of them say, you know— technically advanced societies, they'll invent radio, sure, they'll go on the air, and then they'll invent the H-bomb, and then they'll go off the air. And so those lifetimes are going to be short. And then there are others who say, you know, it could be very long, we'll become enlightened. Uh, There seem to be two camps here.
7: Well, I'm in the optimistic camp. I think we're going to make it through. Even if we have a few H-bombs and we do a lot of disruption, we will resurrect ourselves, so to speak, redevelop our civilization. And of course, we will have memories and actually data as to how that technology was and we can can reproduce
3: it so uh, i'm optimistic i don't think we're going to destroy ourselves presumably if we did find them if seti were to succeed you know tomorrow next week whatever at least that would give us some hope that look they were able to last a long time maybe we can too
7: that's right if we can find only one other civilization that's had great longevity That's really good news. It means it is possible if you carry out your affairs properly.
3: Well, finally, Frank, your own estimate for the average lifetime of technological societies is 10,000 years. When people ask you, and I'm sure they ask you all the time, they say, Frank, where did this number come from? What do you say? Uh, It comes from
7: thinking about our civilization and how far we can sort of see into the future based on what we know of our history. We can't see hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years, but thousands of years is a time scale we can understand. And on those time scales, I, I, to me, it's very probable that our civilization will thrive and still be detectable. The other reason I come to this 10,000 year m- number is that what matters is the average longevity. Now, the average longevity is the average of the longevities of the sh- very short lived destructive ones and any that are very long alive because they are altruistic and continue to make themselves visible on purpose to benefit extraterrestrials. Now, if you work out the math, if only a few percent of civilizations continues to make their presence known for a billion years, a few percent, then the average lifetime is of the order of a million years or 10 million years. And what this says is that if altruism and the continuation of transmission by only a tiny fraction of civilizations continues for long times, the actual mean longevity, which is what matters, is much longer than our
3: intuition tells us. Frank Drake, thanks so very much for talking with us today. You're welcome.
1: Frank Drake is an astronomer at the SETI Institute. Okay, our focus on sticking around this planet as long as possible means that the human species, at least, is preoccupied with time. Trying to increase our lifespan, wishing for longevity, is really a desire for more time. We want time to pass slowly, except when we want it to move quickly.
3: Yeah, you mean like when your friends rope you into watching a German existential film without subtitles, director's cut?
4: Leben is.
1: Yeah, all the time that your friends rope you into watching those films. And so our perception of time changes as we age. Whatever's happening to our ideas about time, it's definitely on our minds, writes journalist Claudia Hammond in her book Time Warped.
8: I think that basically we're all obsessed with time. And I think the reason people are so obsessed with time is that it can play strange tricks on our minds that sometimes it seems to go more slowly than it should, sometimes it goes faster than it should, and yet we never quite get used to that. And I think that's what makes people so interested in time and in talking about time. I mean, time is the most commonly used noun in the English language.
1: My
3: goodness. Well, Claudia, look, for anyone trained in science time has a very well-defined meaning. You know, the small t in all the equations of physics, it plods along with invariable regularity. We can measure its forward march with exquisite accuracy these days. And yet our body clocks seem to be totally elastic. They, they don't have a good crystal in there. What's the deal?
8: That's right. So what I'm interested in is our subjective experience of time. But what's amazing is that no one can find a, a one individual clock that we're using in the brain in the mind to measure time and yet people are quite good at it if you ask people to estimate how long a minute takes to pass they're pretty good at doing it but nobody can find a single clock or even a series of clocks in the mind that do it so so
3: something in our brains is tinkering with our perceptions of time something in there is measuring time Uh, but if we look into the brain using you know i don't know magnetic resonance imaging or some of the high-tech methods we have for looking at our brains, we don't see anywhere, hey, that Bob, that's the clock right there.
8: That's right. There doesn't seem to be a single organ for measuring time. I mean, what we do know, and particularly from people with different brain injuries, is that if people have injuries to certain parts of the brain, and there seem to be four different areas involved, then they might lose the sense of perceiving one particular duration of time. So, for example, the cerebellum, which is the area low down at the back of the neck, that will have an effect on people, if that's damaged, of their millisecond timing. And yet other areas seem to be associated with time just over a second. I mean, like children, for example, with Tourette's syndrome, where people have twitches that are very difficult to control, the children who are very good at suppressing those tics actually are better than other children at judging durations of just over a second. And that seems to be because of the involvement of the the prefrontal cortex, the area just behind the forehead. So there seem to be all sorts of different areas involved, but nobody can find a single clock that does it.
3: My goodness. Well, you know, if you were to ask me to sit still, close my eyes and try to guess when a minute had passed, well, I'm pretty good at that. I can usually get it right within five seconds or so, so it sounds as if my prefrontal cortex is is actually a pretty good clock, even though it doesn't look like a clock.
8: Yeah, that's right. So it could be that different areas of the brain are doing it for different timings. But there's various theories about how the brain might actually be doing this. One is that it's because we can't find a clock, is the brain just somehow using other activity that's there for other things? Is it counting its own pulses that it's using for anything else? It could be recognising faces or or any process that the brain is is doing. Is it using what's already going on there? Or other people have theories that perhaps there are sort of packets of energy and that the brain is, is counting up its if you like, the packets of energy it uses and that that's how it's working out uh, how much time has passed. And and that's why it's so easy to trick as well, because there are are things that can make that go wrong. I
3: I think that just about everyone has heard that if you're suddenly confronting a mortal threat, you know, you're falling off a building or whatever, your whole life passes in front of you. And, you know, there's not enough time during the fall for that to happen in my case. What's really taking place? uh, Does time really slow down?
8: Yes, so it's very, very common for people in terrifying situations like car accidents to say that time feels as if it slowed right down. And one of the reasons is that we know that when we're really scared, our focus narrows. You know, the the brain stops concentrating on anything it doesn't need to do. I mean, some people after there was a a bad rail crash in in Britain and some people who were survivors of it even saw in black and white because colour vision wasn't essential anymore. So fear narrows our focus and that means that we don't notice the markers of time passing if you're in a car accident, say, you won't notice how many buildings you pass or how many other cars pass you or the the song changing on the radio but also we know that emotion etches stronger memories into the mind and that those strong memories will make us assume that it took longer. Because one of the big ways that we judge how much time has passed is by how many new memories we've made and and the strength of those new memories. Do
3: any of these talents change as we get older? You know, when we're impatient to grow up, when we're young, you know, a a day can seem to take forever. Summer vacations go on endlessly. And when we're older, I mean, the years just seem to speed by. What's going on there?
8: Yeah, this is very common for people to say this, and one, the first theory that everyone usually suggests is, is known as the proportionality theory, and so that's the idea that a year when you're eight is an eighth of your life, so no wonder it seems slow. A year when you're 40 is only a 40th of your life, and so no wonder that seems fast. But in a sense, that's only a description of, of how it feels rather than an explanation, because... What people do report in middle age is that the weeks and the months and the years seem to go fast, but that the days still seem to go at a normal speed. And so it's not that it's all speeding up like that. And if if that theory applied, then a single day at the age of 40 would go really, really fast because it would be only one 14,000th of your life so far, so it should go by in a complete flash. And yet that's not what people say they feel. They feel that the days are normal. I think what it is, is that we look at time in two ways. We constantly look at it prospectively, we say, how fast is this going right now? Am I having fun? Is this interesting? Is this boring? Is it fast or slow? And then we look back on time retrospectively and we say, what was that like? And we judge retrospectively by how many new memories we've made. And when you're younger, you make a lot more new memories than you do when you're older, because obviously when you're older, there are more routines. We also remember more from when we're younger. We remember more from the ages of 15 to 25 than we do when we're older. And so prospective time estimation tells us the hours are passing at an average speed, even in middle age. But then retrospectively, we think that the time has gone fast because there are these markers in time that remind us.
3: Can we affect our perception of time, Claudia? I mean, if I were in a rocket headed for Jupiter, I might want time to pass quickly. Or if I'm having a good time at a party, happened once, I, I might want it to slow down and enjoy the scene more. Can we do this, or are we at the mercy of a few hundred thousand years of evolutionary brain wiring?
8: I think there are some things people can try to do I and mean, one of the things that some people try practicing is, is mindfulness and this is you know bringing your awareness to all the different senses and what's going on around you and and people who are very practiced at mindfulness can then say practice that when you're on that railway platform and you've got to wait 20 minutes for your train and you really wish you hadn't and it's going painfully slowly or perhaps if you're in a rocket and they can in a sense take themselves out of time by practicing mindfulness and then um, and partly you're then using that time to do something useful and that's that's good for you um, and that that can slightly change things i think also we can change we can change our perception of how fast say a weekend has gone and so you know if you go on vacation There's loads of new things and it goes really fast because you're having such a good time and then no time at all, it's nearly time to come home. But when you look back again, again, this looking back retrospectively makes it seem as if it, it was a nice long time that you've been away from work and you can do the same as that with the weekend, say. So if you decide to pack your weekend with lots of new activities, do something on Saturday morning, something else Saturday afternoon, lots of new things, when you get to Monday morning and you look back, you will have created so many new memories that you will judge that time to have taken longer and then the weekends will seem longer than the weekdays. Obviously, the disadvantage is that you need to trade rest for that, and what you might want to do, because you're tired out, is to just lie around all weekend. But if you do, the weekend will seem shorter.
3: Well, Claudia Hammond, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you. Claudia Hammond is a BBC broadcaster, and she is the author of Time Warped, Unlocking the Mysteries of Time Perception. Well, maybe we don't actually need to live longer or add years to our lives, but just change our perception of time passing, and it will seem as though we're living longer.
3: How are you suggesting we do that? Create a a pill that will do that. I don't know. The details have to be worked out. (laughs) You know, Molly, I occasionally have asked at parties people whether they would like to live forever.
1: And you know what? The men say yes, and the women say no. Are these women that are married to these men? Good thought. There's a gender split in our production staff as well, we want to thank both members, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
3: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners.
1: Your ears have been attuned to long Live longevity. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website, and check out the Big Picture Science app. You can find it on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because you just dig those really long wavelengths, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show.
2: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
6: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh?